0: 8 ud af 10 personer har haft hovedpine i løbet af det sidste år. Ipræn lindrer lette til moderate smerter, også hovedpine, i op til 8 timer med to tabletter. Ipræn er et lægemiddel, der indeholder ibuprofen. Væsentlige bivirkninger af maveblødninger, mavesår, hudledelser og allergiske reaktioner. Læs mere om Ibren på indlægsedlen eller emballagen, og kontakt din læge eller apoteket, hvis du er i tvivl om noget. Welcome to least of these. Where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part three of the case of serial killer Robert Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Over the past two weeks, we've went over the early life and history of Willie Picton and the Picton family farm. If you haven't heard the two previous episodes, you might want to skip back. You've missed a lot. Again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case like nobody's business. Y'all should check out the book. Let's pick back up right where we left off. It's the 1980s. Willie's working on the farm. His brother Dave is working construction. The babysitter had vanished, never to be heard from again, and unfortunately wouldn't be the only one. And we'll get there. But first, I want to talk about West Coast Reduction. If you remember from last week, Willie had just been digging big-ass holes on the farm with Dave's construction equipment to dump all of the unwanted parts of animals he slaughtered on the farm in the holes until they were full and then filling them in. But in the 1980s, he found another solution to his animal waste problem, West Coast Reduction. What is West Coast Reduction? It's a rendering plant. Listen, friends, if you're eating lunch right now, please accept my apologies for what I'm about to tell you. So, a rendering plant such as West Coast Reduction is where slaughterhouses, farmers, food companies, and restaurants take their unwanted carcasses, bone, feathers, and meat that cannot be processed for food and turn it into food byproducts like feed for animals, soaps, paints, oils, cosmetics and a whole bunch of other stuff. Not-so-fun fact. The carcasses of dogs, cats, horses, and even roadkill end up in meat-rendering plants, where they are processed as well. According to USDA.gov, it all goes down a little something like this. The animal carcasses, feathers, bones, whatever, are all ground together, placed into a cooking vessel, and heated to a high temperature which kills microorganisms and removes excess moisture. Once cooked, the fat, protein, and water are separated, sterilized, and sent out for their specific purposes. The carcasses are either dropped off by the farmers themselves, or arrangements can be made for pickup. The Pictons did both. Willie started dropping off carcasses from the farm, and it wasn't long before the people working at the plant knew him well enough that he could just be waved on in and no one so much as piqued at the contents of the 45-gallon drums he routinely brought and dumped at the facility. Well, no one that is besides Jim Cress. Jim, a driver at West Coast Reduction, later recalled that in the years he picked up from the farm, what he saw in the barrels shocked him. While most farmers would get absolutely every piece of usable meat from the animal, the carcasses that came from the Picton farm contained large chunks of meat. It seemed rather wasteful, and that wasn't all. Oftentimes, there would be black, charred-looking pieces among the mystery meat soup, which he never encountered anywhere else. He thought it was weird, but never questioned, because, I mean, after all, roadkill is acceptable. It doesn't seem like they're picky. And the weirdness didn't stop there. According to the Globe and Willie Picton stood out to the employees of West Coast for another reason. He was so gross. What level of hot garbage do you have to be to stand out to workers at a meat rendering plant that deals in carcasses and rotting flesh? I don't know, but apparently, Willie picked and achieved it. The plant foreman, Robert Bears, would later testify that it was, quote, so gross-looking to watch Willie work, stating, He was such a dirty guy. It was gross. I felt sorry for him. The dead animals are not a very pretty thing to work with with your bare hands, again, according to Globe and Mail. You heard that right. Willie handled drums of rotting carcasses with his bare hands. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume he didn't have a bottle of Purell in his back pocket. Everyone else at the plant wore gloves, but not Willie. At one point, Bears had even offered to give Willie a pair of gloves, but he refused. Because, well, he's Willie Picton. Filth is in his DNA. But what's most important to know about West Coast reduction? Isn't the lack of oversight back then, or even Willie Picton and his ability to be more disgusting than a vat of random animal parts, but it's location. You know what they say, location is everything. You see, West Coast Reduction was just blocks from Vancouver's downtown east side, and every time Willie Picton dropped off his buckets of animal parts, he'd go for a little drive right down to the low track. Vancouver's downtown east side is one of the poorest and most drug-impacted communities in all of Canada. According to vancouverbynow.com, the downtown east side is Vancouver's oldest neighborhood with many important historical sites. However, in the 1980s, businesses in the area began to shut down. While at the same time, many mentally ill patients were released from government ran institutions. And the drug epidemic was gripping the entire world, Vancouver included. It was the perfect storm. People, many of them indigenous without resources, flocked to the east side. The low track contained SROs or single room occupancy hotels, which are exactly what they sound like. A single, small hotel room that often shares a bathroom with dozens of other rooms. Their are run down, have been known to be infested with bedbugs and cockroaches, but they're super cheap, and sometimes the only option for those living in poverty with mental health and substance abuse issues. Soon, drug dealers, pimps, and other criminals began to infiltrate the area, and it all spiraled out of control. The neighborhood was both then and now known for poverty, drug addiction, prostitution, and violent crime. Government officials didn't help matters either. Instead of coming up with a strategy to help those living in the area, they took a different approach. They'd just hand over the low track area to the drugs and crime. Because, I mean, they didn't want those people living in their neighborhoods. And God forbid they try to help them. And this strategy wasn't a secret. The mayor of Vancouver in the 80s, Gordon Campbell, spoke to reporters And actually stated, quote, we do not want hookers around our high schools or our elementary schools. We do not want them in our parks. We do not want them in our residential neighborhoods. They wanted to keep those they felt were undesirable the hell away from those they saw as respectable. And their strategy sucked because to this day, the downtown east side of Vancouver is a whole different world one of despair and desperation. A world where sidewalks are littered with used needles, people sleeping in a drug-induced state lying on the ground, the smell of death lingers in the air. The low track was known for violence and serial killers. And the police were known for looking the other way. Drugs and sex were cheap and easily accessible. And that's exactly what drove Willie Picked into the area. Not the drugs, but the sex. His brother Dave and his biker buddies had told him all about the girls working in the low track, and Willie, never really experiencing a real life girlfriend, was intrigued. So he started heading straight over after he went to do his business at West Coast Reduction. And the more time Willie Picton spent in the neighborhood, the more sex workers began to seemingly vanish into thin air. And it wasn't as if Vancouver needed another serial killer. As we talked about last week, Clifford Olson had just been caught and arrested. But there was already another killer on the loose, this time targeting the women of the downtown east side, even before Willie Pickton started cruising the area. And this killer was known to police and had been for decades. Holy shit, y'all. When I started researching this case, I thought I would be covering one serial killer. But lo and behold, we're on episode three, and we're about to get into serial killer number three. The Boozing Barber, otherwise known as Gilbert Paul Jordan. According to the book Invisible Victims, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women by Katherine McCarthy and R.J. Parker, Gilbert Paul Jordan was a lifelong criminal and notorious alcoholic. For over 50 years, he ran the streets committing crimes in his teenage years like theft, assault, possession of drugs, and then later, around the age of 21 or so, graduated on to assault, abduction, rape, hit and run, and murder. And the murder weapon Gilbert Paul Jordan chose was mind-blowing. In 1961, at the age of 30, Jordan abducted a five year old girl from Mission Indian Reserve in British Columbia. While details about this case are unknown, what we do know is that he was arrested, charged, but later acquitted. Just a few months later, he was back at it, this time snatching two women from the downtown East Side and providing them with copious amounts of vodka. One of the women stepped out of the car and Jordan drove off, leaving her stranded. He took the second woman to a secondary location where he allegedly raped her. He was later charged with theft and rape, but the rape charge didn't stick. He was convicted of the theft, but again acquitted of the rape. Gilbert Paul Jordan committed the first known murder in 1965 when a woman named Ivy Rose Oswald was found dead after a night out drinking with Jordan. Ivy herself struggled with alcohol abuse, so her death was initially ruled accidental. They believed Ivy Rose simply drank herself to death. Her blood alcohol concentration at autopsy was 0. 0.51, which is incredibly high, especially when you consider, according to micwell.nd.edu. Alcohol poisoning and loss of consciousness usually occurs between 0.25 and 0.39, and anything over a 0.40 generally results in a coma, followed by death due to respiratory arrest. Again, Ivy Rose Oswald had a blood alcohol concentration of 0.51. Ivy wouldn't be Jordan's only victim, and each victim had several things in common. They were indigenous women from the downtown east side. They all died from toxic levels of alcohol. They were either found with Gilbert Paul Jordan or he had been known to be with them just before they were found dead. And they all struggled with an addiction to alcohol, giving Jordan the perfect alibi. He knew their deaths would be written off by police as overdose. Many believe Jordan has countless other victims whose deaths were never so much as glanced into. So there is no way to know exactly how many women died at the hands of Gilbert Paul Jordan. But here is what we do know. In 1974, Jordan served just over a year in prison for indecent sexual assault. He was released in 1975 when he abducted a mentally impaired woman from an institution and raped her. His sentence? Twenty-six months. And here's where things really ramped up. While he served his little two years in prison for raping a disabled woman, he learned how to cut hair. This gave him an idea. Upon his release, he opened a barber shop right near the downtown east side. He could make a few bucks as a barber, but more importantly, he could lure vulnerable women from the low track into his shop. Three of them would be found dead right there in the barber shop. others while in his company at hotels in the downtown east side. Mary Johnson was found deceased at the Almer Hotel on November 30, 1980 with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.34. Next was Barbara Paul, who died at the Glennaird Hotel on September 11, 1981 with a BAC of 0.41 followed by Mary Johns, who was found dead at Jordan's Barbershop on July 30, 1982, with a blood alcohol level of .76. Patricia Thomas died on December 15, 1984, with a BAC of .51. She was also found at the barbershop, as was Patricia Andrews, on June 28, 1985. Andrew's blood alcohol concentration was an astounding .79. Vera Harry died at the Clifton Hotel on November 19, 1986. Gilbert Paul Jordan reported all of these deaths to the police. The coroner ruled all of them accidental. Investigators, the coroner, they didn't seem to notice the pattern, even though it was as loud as the Lily Pulitzer spring line. On October 12, 1987, police received an anonymous call, informing them that they would find the body of a young woman at the Niagara Hotel. When they responded, they found Vanessa Lee Buckner's nude body on the floor of the hotel room. Her blood alcohol concentration at autopsy was 0.91. I repeat, 0.91. Witnesses said that they had seen Vanessa Buckner enter the hotel with Gilbert Jordan and that Jordan had left several times during the night to get more alcohol. He had last left the room about an hour prior to the anonymous 911 call being placed. The Vancouver police finally took notice and began to surveil Jordan. From the 12th of October to November 26, 1987, They tailed him and watched as he prowled the low track looking for his next victim, searching out Native women involved in the sex trade. And on four different occasions, they had to rescue women before things turned fatal. On November 20th, Rosemary Wilson was rescued from the Balamoral Hotel. Her blood alcohol concentration was 0.52 at the time of rescue. Just a day later, police rescued Verna Chartrand at the Pacific Hotel. Her BAC was 0.43. On the 25th of November, Sheila Joe was rescued at the Rainbow Hotel. And again, a day later, Mabel Olson from the Pacific Hotel. Both Sheila and Mabel's blood alcohol levels are unknown. According to court records, while the women were in the hotels with Gilbert Jordan, Police were outside listening and heard Jordan say things like, Have a drink. Down the hatch, baby. 20 bucks if you drink it right down. See if you're a real woman. Finish that drink. Down the hatch? Hurry right down. You need another drink? I'll give you 50 bucks if you can take it. I'll give you 10, 20, 50 dollars, whatever you want. Come on, I want to see you get it all down. You get it right down. I'll give you the 50 bucks. I told you that. If you finish that, I'll give you 75. Finish your drink. I'll give you 20. Although police stopped Jordan before he killed four more women, he was not arrested or charged with anything in relation to Rosemary, Verna, Sheila, or Mabel. So what was the point in all of this? Your guess is as good as mine. For reasons unknown to God and all life forms, police ended their surveillance. According to Invisible Victims, just days later, on November 29, 1987, the nude body of Edna Shade was found at the Glenard Hotel. Upon autopsy, it was discovered that she had a .77 blood alcohol level. Fingerprints belonging to Gilbert Jordan were found on a vodka bottle and drinking glasses in the hotel room. But to the shock of no one, he was never charged with anything in connection to Edna Shade's death. According to HistoryDaily.org, it wasn't until later in November of 1987, when he was actually found on top of a woman forcing a bottle of vodka down her throat that Jordan would be charged with an actual crime. And it wouldn't be for forcing vodka down someone's throat. Instead, he was facing a murder charge in connection with Vanessa Lee Buckner. You see, police had done a little investigation in that case. In 1988, the trial began, and details of that investigation emerged. Not only had witnesses seen him in and out of the hotel getting more alcohol the night Vanessa was murdered, his fingerprints were found yet again all over glasses at the scene. And further, police had traced that anonymous phone call about the body straight back to the Mabel Arch Hotel, specifically to the room of Gilbert Paul Jordan. That's right, folks. He called the cops on himself. You really can't make this shit up. Why did he call the cops on himself? Nobody knows. But I can tell you, it wasn't a sign of remorse because Jordan had zero remorse for anything he had done, stating to reporter with the Vancouver Sum, Jim Beatty, I didn't give a damn who I was with. I mean, we're all dying sooner or later. But despite all of this, Gilbert Jordan was not found guilty of murder, but instead convicted of manslaughter. According to records, the court declared that Vanessa Buckner had died due to Gilbert Jordan, quote, supplying a lethal amount of liquor to a female alcoholic who died as a result, end quote. But he hadn't murdered her because, I mean, she was an alcoholic, you know? Her reputation was further trashed in the courtroom, but I'm sure you, as have I, have heard enough. The victim, who had a blood alcohol level more than double what is required to induce coma and death, and 11 times the legal limit, was blamed for her own death and not the twisted freak who forced it down her throat. Jordan was given a 15-year sentence of which would be reduced to nine years on appeal. He would actually serve only six years. He was released in 1994 and back on his bullshit immediately, violating the conditions of his probation multiple times. The conditions? He was to stay in Vancouver Island and was not to drink alcohol. Of course, he violated both of those. According to Medium.com, in June of 2000, he was charged with sexual assault, assault, negligence causing bodily harm, and administering a noxious substance. The substance? Bingo, alcohol. He was released yet again and in 2002 arrested after he was found drinking with a woman. He did a 15-month stint in jail after that incident and was released again. In 2004, Jordan was binge drinking with a woman at a hotel yet again. This time, it was the York Hotel and the woman was Barb Buckley. Barb was so intoxicated that one of her friends and an employee at the hotel had taken her to the hospital. Gilbert Jordan was charged but later acquitted. In 2005, he was free as a bird following that acquittal, and police actually issued a public safety alert warning members of the community to stay the hell away from him because he was a safety concern. You think? Jordan and police played a game of catch and release all the way up until his death on July 7, 2006. Cause of death? Cirrhosis of the liver due to alcohol abuse. Even Helen Keller, God rest her soul, saw that one coming. While Gilbert Paul Jordan is only linked with the deaths of 10 women, many believe that is just the tip of the iceberg, and the real death toll is likely in the hundreds, none of them ever receiving justice. Due to his weapon of choice, we will likely never know how many women were murdered at his hands and never received so much as a blurb in an article or a chapter in a book. In the early 80s, reporters and community members began to apply pressure to the police about the women's deaths and those that had simply vanished. According to On the Farm by Stevie Cameron, Kim Pemberton was a police reporter at the Vancouver Sun, and she was fierce. She was always at the daily police briefings, and each time a woman in the area would turn up dead or missing, she'd ask the police, Was she a prostitute? And each time she was met with the same level of annoyance. The officers rolled their eyes and sighed. Pemberton recalled to Cameron, The police were not interested in prostitute murders, and they were loath to connect these murders to prostitutes. They were also Loath to talk about serial killers. The police would say, oh, we have another Jordan-esque. And what they meant by that comment was they'd found another dead native woman poisoned by alcohol. Any body, in fact, found with high alcohol content was considered Jordan-esque. They knew who was doing it, but there was definitely a social hierarchy of those worth investigation or not. But Kim Pemberton and a small team of Sun reporters Thought these deaths and disappearances were definitely worth investigation, so they kept pressing. According to Kim Pemberton, police doubled down. One senior homicide investigator looked at her and said, quote, I'd rather solve one Aaron Kaplan over a dozen prostitutes. Aaron Kaplan was a two year old who had been abducted and murdered in a wealthy district of Vancouver. Some of the officers at the Vancouver Police Department at the time clearly felt that only some victims deserved justice, and others didn't even warrant so much as an investigation. It was smack dab in the middle of Gilbert Jordan's 20-year reign of terror that Willie Pickton began to cruise the downtown east side of Vancouver. Women from the low track were not only turning up dead, others simply vanished. In the fall of 1984, Linda Louise Grant was reported missing. She was long believed to have been a victim of Willie Picton, but I am happy to report that she was located alive and well in 2006. She came forward after seeing herself listed as missing on the internet. On August 1st, 1985, 42-year-old Laura Ma vanished. However, years later in April of 2009, according to Churro News, it was discovered that she had actually died of natural causes on January 17, 1986 at Burnaby General Hospital. The reason she was listed as missing for years? She had entered the hospital under the name Marie Laura Ma and given an incorrect date of birth. Laura Ma vanished. Marie-Laura Ma died at a nearby hospital, but absolutely no connection was made for 25 years. Why am I telling you these two stories when one was found safe and the other died of natural causes? Because it just goes to show again the lack of investigation into the deaths and disappearances of these marginalized women. The following disappearances wouldn't have such an ending. According to the Doe Network, on May 30, 1985, Cheryl Donahue vanished after leaving Victoria and traveling between Vancouver Island and Grand Prairie for a job interview. Cheryl was 39 years old at the time of her disappearance. Eight months later, on March 13, 1986, Elaine Allenback, who was just 21 years old, disappeared without a trace. It was believed she was on her way to Seattle when she disappeared. Friends of Elaine reported that she kept a diary that contained valuable information that could potentially lead them to her whereabouts. But they say another sex worker broke into her apartment, found her diary, and burned it because it also contained information that could be incriminating to numerous people. Her friend spoke to Stevie Cameron and said, Maybe things have changed now that these women have seen so many of their friends disappear, but I know that fear rules most of their worlds, and they tend to keep their mouth shut and protect those they fear most. Two years later, in July of 1988, 15 year old Teresa Ann Williams also vanished from the downtown East Side. Teresa was a young indigenous woman who had a really rough upbringing. She had ran away from home at 13 with her best friend, who was also just a teenager. Both girls did what they had to to survive, and at just 15, Teresa was a mother of two. Not long after she disappeared, a leg bone was found in a park near West Coast Reduction. At the time, there was no way to match that bone with Teresa. However, years later, police would identify the leg bone from the park as belonging to Teresa Williams. She had obviously been murdered. In 2011, Teresa Ann Williams was finally laid to rest with a memorial service, according to justicefornativewomen.com. Of course, the disappearances didn't stop there. Elaine Doomba was 34 years old in 1989. She had recently moved to Vancouver from her hometown of Regina when she vanished. Elaine came from a large family, and they loved her deeply. To this day, according to her cousin, the grief is so overwhelming, it's hard for her family to even talk about her. On July 13, 1989, 30-year-old Ingrid Sowett set out to go and visit her boyfriend. She was never heard from again. According to her mother, she said, see you later, as she went out the door to visit that boyfriend and never came back. Ingrid Sowett didn't match the profile of the other women who had vanished. They were sex workers, most of them with substance abuse issues. Ingrid did suffer with mental health issues. She had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. But she was not a sex worker, and as far as her family and friends, and anybody else for that matter knew, Ingrid did not abuse drugs or alcohol. In 1989, friends and family of the missing and murdered women and advocates working with those in the sex trade were fed up with the indifference of the Vancouver police. They had had enough, so they came together and formed a group and demanded action from law enforcement. They also took it to the streets and spoke to the women working on the low track encouraging them to look out for one another by taking down names and descriptions of their customers, as well as dates, times, and locations. The women on the street took note. The Vancouver police twiddled their thumbs. But they refused to stop. They got louder, and eventually they were heard by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Project Eclipse was born. We'll have to get into Project Eclipse next week because we are running out of time. But I'll leave you with this. The women? They continued to bring attention to the plight of those murdered and missing and created an annual Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Valentine's Remembrance Walk to both honor the lives of the women and express their outrage at the lack of action by police. The Valentine's Remembrance Walk continues annually to this day. I began this series with the sole purpose of telling the story of the women who fell victim to Willie Picton because many of them never received justice. But it's impossible to tell one story without telling the other, because all of these victims have one glaring thing in common. They were viewed as expendable. Not by their families, loved ones, or friends, but by those who were sworn to protect and serve and the system itself. When we, as a society, assign a different value to a human life for whatever reason, whether it's skin color, economic status, mental health or substance abuse issues, or any other rationale, we create an environment where evil thrives. And monsters like Clifford Olson, Gilbert Paul Jordan, Willie Pickton, and others like them continue to prey on the marginalized, while others argue whether or not these victims are worth even seeking justice for. And that, my friends, is unacceptable. These women absolutely mattered. They were mothers, daughters, sisters, and friends and most importantly, human beings. Their stories need to be told. In the words of Winston Churchill, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Join me next week for part four of the Pig Farmer series. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these new episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.